to Peace in Their Time, Episode 29, The Ruhr Crisis, Part 2. Last week, I left you with a botched left-wing uprising, and not to be outdone, the far right was going to get in on the action too. All the left-wing activity that was happening in the middle of 1923 was not going unnoticed down south in the ultra-right stronghold of Bavaria. Just as a refresher from last week, that region was being run by Gustav Ritter von Kahr, who had formed a triumvirate alliance with General Otto von Lassau, head of the army in Bavaria, and Colonel Hans von Seisser, the head of police. The group sought greater autonomy from the national government, that they personally despised, and were courting the militant part of the political far-right for support, which at this time was increasingly coming under the influence of one Adolf Hitler, who was himself calling for the dissolution of the Republic due to its weak response during the Ruhr Crisis. Carr and Hitler both knew that they were playing a dangerous game by agitating violent action during this critical moment. Carr himself kept his dreams small, thinking of formal Bavarian autonomy within Germany. Hitler, on the other hand, wanted the whole shebang, and neither was quite in a position to overpower the other. On October 24, 1923, Hitler tried to sway Lasso and Sizer away from Carr, subjecting them to one of his classic four-hour diatribes for which he would become very famous for. While they certainly wanted to get in on the Republic toppling action, they weren't ready to go along with Hitler, of all people. Keep in mind, at this time, he was still very much a small fish in a small pond. On November 7th, there was a meeting among the Combat League leadership. Remember that being the greater alliance of the ultra-right that the Nazis were just a component of. And it was decided that there would be a push to disarm the Bavarian police and local Reichswehr. It would be carried out with Free Corps units, paramilitaries, and members of the Nazi SA, the brown shirts that we will become more acquainted with down the road. Uh, the next evening, Carr was giving a speech in a beer hall when Hitler appeared in the doorway with a team of stormtroopers and a machine gun. They seized the place, and struggling to make himself heard, he dramatically fired a shot from his pistol into the ceiling. He declared a national revolution, stating that the government was dissolved and a provisional national government would be forthcoming. He rounded up Carr, Lasso, and Sizer into a separate room at the beer hall and reassured them that they could consider themselves partners in the enterprise. Uh, they were, of course, prisoners, but were in no position to negotiate and accepted Hitler's authority. Hitler reappeared before the crowd and announced that the three were being promoted to national offices in this new revolution. Ludendorff, who was also participating in the push, had arrived decked out in his imperial best and was announced as leader of the new national army, which was basically all the paramilitaries running around Munich. Hitler then brought out the triumvirate, and they unenthusiastically declared their support for the push. Things started to go wrong pretty much immediately, though, for the fascists. Uh, the uprisings mostly failed to seize the military, police, and state objectives they had been planning on occupying, and there was a great deal of confusion as to who was supposed to do what. Hitler left the triumvirate alone with Ludendorff while he set out into Munich to try and impose some order. The three appealed to Ludendorff and promised, on their honor as gentlemen, that they would continue to cooperate with the push if he simply let them go. Ludendorff, who was never the most stable of fellows and now in his later years, was kind of losing touch 
agreed with them and let them go. They fled to safety and declared their opposition to the revolt. Loyalist police and troops immediately started moving into Munich. Now, Hitler himself did have sizable bodies of troops in Munich. It was just that nobody knew what the plan was, and that included Hitler. He was really, really hoping this would be like Mussolini's march on Rome, and the civil government would just fall in line and hand him victory on a platter. That didn't happen, and his options became very limited very quickly. Hitler and Ludendorff decided that they had a mass of troopers with no plan, they might as well march around the city and see if something swung their way. And so, a column of 2,000 men marched through the city, eventually coming upon a police cordon. The police opened fire, killing several of the fascist marchers, including a guy standing right next to Hitler, which is just one of those cruel jokes of history that he came so close to dying that day. Hitler himself was knocked down and dislocated his shoulder. He was hurried away in a car, and the whole thing wound down to nothing. I suppose if you've been down on the German far left on their continued inability to launch a revolution, it is some comfort that their far-right opposites were just as bad, if not more so. I'll be going into more detail about the whole incident when I get to the Hitler episodes, as this beer hall push would grow into a key piece of the Nazis' mythology. For now, just remember that the far-right tried and failed again at toppling the government. And just like after the Kapusch, the courts didn't care to prosecute the far-right terribly much. Hitler, Ludendorff, and the other ringleaders were put up on the dock in early 1924. Almost all of them were military or ex-military, and there wasn't a German court in existence that was going to go hard on prominent heroes like Ludendorff. The most convenient person to convict was obviously Hitler, even though he was more figurehead than Fuhrer at this point. For his part, Hitler took the role of Patsy with gusto. He treated the stand as a soapbox to rail against everything under the sun. Versailles, the Weimar Republic, the Bolsheviks, the whole Hitler package at the time. He turned the whole thing into a gigantic PR stunt, and actually pulled it off as he aroused the sympathy of the nationalistic court. There was an initial fear he would be deported to his home country of Austria, but they refused to take him. He was sentenced to five years for the uprising, to be served in the fortress of Landsberg Prison. Don't worry about it being a fortress, the accommodations were pleasant as far as prisons went. Hitler would wind up serving only a year there, but we'll get to that when we focus in on the Nazis and what the coup meant to their mythology. So, a purely Bavarian-based right-wing uprising had taken place amidst the backdrop of the greater national crisis, and had fallen apart in short order. The leniency of the sentences did make the event noteworthy at the time, as Hitler and a handful of other co-conspirators got those light prison sentences, and others, like Ludendorff, not getting any punishment at all. There were others who fled the scene, much like during the Kapusch, and elected to lay low abroad, and they weren't pursued very intensely. The light touch exerted by the courts scandalized much of Germany outside of Bavaria, although the sentiment didn't do a whole lot of good. There were no reforms to the courts as a result, and nobody lost their jobs. It was just another sign of how there weren't really any protectors for the Weimar Republic, only an absence of a movement strong enough to completely topple it just yet. That foreboding thought aside, there was still a little matter of the country falling apart in the fall of 1923. Stressmen had ended the policy of resistance, 
and was frantically trying to cobble together a deal to rescue the nation's finances. Alas, he would not be able to complete that job as Chancellor. At the end of November, the SPD, alienated against him by having their local administrations dissolved in Thuringia and Saxony, following the mostly aborted communist uprising, withdrew from his coalition. Without the needed support in the Reichstag, Stressman resigned after only a few months. President Ebert agreed to appoint a representative from the Zentrum Party, Wilhelm Marx, as the new chancellor. He was an intensely uninspiring figure. Not bad, per se, just humdrum. He was, however, a force of stability, and would wind up being the longest-serving chancellor that Weimar Germany experienced. Not that that's saying a lot, but given the political instability in Germany, and Europe in general, that you might have picked up on, it's at least a little notable. Marx would govern through a liberal-centrist coalition, the far right proving unacceptable to Ebert, who you will remember that as president, could depose and appoint chancellors at will. Marx also wasn't supported by the left, as the SPD was still smarting from being lumped in with the communists again. The KPD, as usual, was a pariah in these considerations. So Marx had to make do with a minority government, meaning that the majority of the Reichstag did not support him. But nobody could assemble a better governing coalition. Given the scale of problems the country was facing, most of the other groups probably were relieved they didn't have the responsibility of fixing things. But now that internal challenges from the right and left have been squashed, and defeat admitted to France, the pathway was at least clear moving forward. Stressman, no longer chancellor, stayed on in the government as the foreign minister, effectively the Secretary of State of Germany. He would hang on to that post for the rest of his life. Spoiler, he has a stroke and dies in 1929. The core challenge to making a settlement still remained as from before, though. The French wanted their goddamn money. Germany didn't have it, and France wasn't going to lean in on the French to back off. The impasse was finally broken by the only country who could break it, the United States. The Entente realized they probably couldn't broker an agreement themselves, so they formally requested the Americans to help them out. The Americans that answered the call were Charles Dawes and Owen Young. Dawes was selected because he was a banker who had helped secure the initial rounds of American loans to the Entente back in World War I, while Young was the chairman of General Electric, which in turn had business links with the German electrics company AEG. Uh, those facts don't matter in the grand scheme of things. I just like people being appointed to solve a gigantic year-plus international crisis based totally on their connections. Anyway, the Americans showed up to an environment where all sides were looking to cut a deal. Remember that Poincaré, the French prime minister who started all this with the occupation of the Ruhr, was facing increased pressure back at home, as this is when his own country's finances started suffering an uptick in inflation as well. By mid-January, the patriotic consensus in France to stick it to the Germans started falling apart. By June 1924, he would be, for a time, out of the French prime minister spot. And as of December 1923, Ramsay MacDonald and the Labour Party were governing in the UK. So there was increasingly fresh leadership stepping in to try and resolve all this. There is a little detail on the American side that should be noted, though. Dawson Young went to Europe at the request of the Entente to try and mediate a solution, but they were not sent on behalf of the U.S. government. In fact, the U.S. government was very explicit 
that it would not be guaranteeing any treaties and would not be providing any special funding or advocating for changing the existing reparations amount Germany was due to pay. Dawes and Young would be acting as private entities, and it was not the full power of American finance that was being put into play, what with isolationism and all that. Over the course of 1924, the American-led commission created what became known as the Dawes Plan. Sorry, Young, you got cut out of the name. It didn't really change the final amount of reparations that Germany was expected to pay, it just changed the formula of how it would be paid. The amount expected to be paid each year was lowered down to a billion marks, with it expected to be raised to 2.5 billion once 1929 came around. Payments were projected to be stretched over the next 60 years, dependent on the German economy, as the amount could be lowered or raised every now and again. The Reichsbank, which you might gather from the name, was the Central Bank of Germany, was placed under international control in order to prevent a reoccurrence of the inflation disaster of the past two years. Finally, there would be an 800 million mark loan provided by Wall Street to Germany to provide fiscal stability to get back on its feet. For its part, Germany had already begun making huge slashes in public spending, while also finally jacking up its tax rates to create a deflation to normalize the nation's currency. But there was one last little problem. By the summer of 1924, the German Reichstag didn't care for the deal. Chancellor Marx was leading a minority government, and all this acquiescence to reparations smacked of caving into the French. The right wing didn't like it, and of course the KPD was going to vote against it just to create chaos. To pass the Dawes Plan into law, they needed a two-thirds majority, and they didn't have it. The window to fix the crisis started to close. In a rare case for this time period, the American ambassador reached out directly to the Reichstag representatives, stonewalling the legislation. He warned them bluntly that if they turned the plan down, they could expect no help from the U.S. for the next century. Probably more importantly, Stennis and the industrial lobby started turning the screws and the needed representatives fell into line. It was a relatively minor delay but shows the lengths that much of Germany went to in order to delude themselves into thinking their position was stronger than it actually was. The deal was ratified, finally, on August 29, 1924. Part of the deal was that the French troops would leave the Ruhr, which they did over the course of the next year. The Republic weathered a notably great test and come out the other end. The massive loans coming in from America were going to be useful both to provide investment in the German economy and to help pay back the Entente. Indeed, much of the money that was loaned out by Wall Street to Germany wound up going to France, which in turn used to pay back their loans with Wall Street. Funny how that worked out. The renewed confidence and economic activity are going to make the next five years the so-called golden years of Weimar. And I'll admit, there will be quite a bit less to discuss, as these days will be far less eventful than the preceding five years. The good years, though, as you might already be aware, will prove to be illusionary, as the scars of the preceding years are only covered over, not permanently addressed. The theme of the next five years will be one of increased confidence, even a return to a kind of normalcy. The actual achievements, though, will be insufficient to heal the nation of its past traumas in time to meet the new ones down the road. Before we get into all that, let's 
take stock of the past five years. The first part has certainly been dominated by the violent interplay between the far left and far right of the country, with the far right largely getting the better of it. The liberal center, most invested in the Republican experiment, had just barely managed to keep hanging on, mostly because the attempts to overthrow that republic had been haphazard at best. It was a different Germany than the imperial one that we started our narrative with, although not everyone in Germany had reconciled themselves to that fact. Many never did. Some dreamed of a world that never came, while others struggled to mix the old and the new. If there was one thing for certain in Germany during this decade, it was that the population took full advantage of having the freedom of political expression, and popular opinion was an ever-shifting kaleidoscope. In my initial episodes on Germany, I stressed how smaller towns still had a critical importance to German life, how it blurred perceived class distinctions between the lower and middle classes, and kept political opinion among Germans in these areas relatively static. The war upended everything by centralizing industry and focusing the working class together in ever greater numbers. There would be no going back from this either. Once concentrated in the major cities, the workers would not be going back to the villages. This created a number of new situations that influenced German life. The first is that the smaller towns, and especially villages, saw a decline in their fortunes. I say that relative to the rest of the nation, as the past five years can be best described as disastrous in general. The smaller communities, though, saw two losses, one being the workers raising stakes and taking their labor and families to the big cities. The other is that many of the youth served and died in the trenches. The composition of the smaller communities, once the heartlands of Germany, became much older and also more female, although that last bit didn't hold true for long either, as many women, not seeing any prospects in moribund communities, left for the larger towns as well. The people who were left behind lived in dislocated environments, bewildered at the sudden hollowing out of their hometowns. It created an environment of fear, of resentment, and uncertainty. They wanted things to go back to the way they were, somehow, and were resentful of the republic that they perceived as having brought all these changes about. Always remember, that while the SPD as a party did not maintain its hold on leadership in the Reichstag for long, and while they also abandoned their commitment to revolution to bring about socialism, they were forever linked with both the Republic and the international socialist movement that they had largely uh, distanced themselves from. The SPD was always of uncertain loyalty at best in the eyes of the German center, and of the worst treason in the eyes of the right and the Republic was their brainchild. Back at the end of 1918, Ludendorff and Hindenburg had deliberately allowed the SPD to take a leadership role in transitioning Imperial Germany into a more democratic form. They did this so that the party would carry the blame for the dislocation that was sure to follow. In this, the generals got exactly what they wanted. The average German in the smaller towns and countryside held a distinct distrust of the Republic, which was grounded in their distrust for the proletarian roots of the SPD. Immediately, the less heavily urbanized populations of the country failed to identify with the new nation, something that would never be addressed either. The cities experienced their own changes. They were the centers of the civil war that so roiled the Republic in its first year. The street fighting between the workers and the Free Corps was extensive and touched most of the major urban centers at some point or in the case of Berlin and the Ruhr, numerous times. We can brush off 
all that I described in earlier episodes as simple, mind-numbing historical facts. But try and imagine machine gun duels and artillery bombardments along the major thoroughfares of the cities you might live in. And even though thousands were engaged with fighting each other, this left hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions more, huddled in their apartments and townhouses waiting for the fighting to subside. And then when the fighting was over, God knows how long the Free Corps would linger and impose their style of trench justice on the civilian population. It left an impression, and generally created an exhaustion conflict, which was, of course, exacerbated by the previous four years of wartime deprivation. A lot of people were desperate to get back to normal, and especially in the middle class, they just wanted the workers' uprisings to cease. Those who were well off before the war associated the days of the Kaiser with their own lost prosperity and were more inclined to sympathize with figures from the old order, rather than the scary socialist proletariat that was promising a world less impressed with the material success that they had been so obsessed with. The influx of newcomers over the course of the war and then the years after saw a shift in the character of the cities. The major urban centers became more proletarian and also younger. Pre-existing neighborhoods were left to grapple with the changes, even as their own economic footholds became less secure with each passing year. The urban workers could reliably be counted upon to turn towards the SPD or the USPD in the initial couple years of the Republic and the KPD. The rest of the urban population generally leaned more towards the liberal centrist parties, at least initially. The problem there was that as the state lurched from crisis to crisis and the economy worsened, even the cosmopolitan element of the cities started looking towards more drastic action. And given the left being constantly assailed by the state, they slowly started trending to the far right. The drift towards the far right for much of Germany that had enjoyed prosperity in the pre-war years is probably the greatest actual cause for the failure of democracy and the eventual turn towards fascism and a war in the future. The right could agree upon a set of almost instinctual nationalistic principles and offered a clear vision, or at least spoke directly to the grievances of a humiliated and impoverished people. And that platform did not include support for the Republic as a precondition. Germany had been better off before it in their eyes, and they would be better off after it as well. The violent foundation of the Republic had also alienated most of the far left of the country as well. Many have commented on the missed opportunity of early democracy in Germany, but given the conditions the new state was born into, there really couldn't have been any hope of long-term success. The legitimacy was simply not present for the majority of the nation's population. The middle of the country normally would gravitate towards some kind of status quo, but the sequence of crises threw that social group into a mode of perpetual uncertainty. It was especially so that the inflation of 1922 to 1924 was not just a moment for the Germans that lived through it, but a vivid memory that stuck with them for the rest of their lives. For Germany as a whole, the moment was a watershed. The nation had emerged from the spiral of inflation only at the graces of outside powers, and submission to the Entente had been a necessity, which was humiliating because for most of the German population, or at least the, the political class that represented them, there was the popular fiction that their country had not, in fact, lost the Great War. Yes, they had suffered incredible losses. Yes, the population had been starving. Victory, though, had been potentially around the corner to them. 
and it was the fault of others that brought down the old empire. Yeah, I know, the army of the German Empire was falling apart at the end, and the generals were the ones who had called for the peace. I know, you know, everybody knows. But the German people did not see any battles on their homeland. They only saw a forlorn army marching home after being betrayed by the insidious left. It was a situation not ideal for the new government. But hey, who am I to be a downer? This is the start of the Golden Age, after all. Whenever people talk of the feeling of liberation, of the expansion of the arts and culture, of expanded social mores, they usually refer to this time, the good time. It seems extraordinary that it only lasted for the better part of five years, and even then, unevenly across the nation. But to have made such an impression, it had to have counted for something, right? Well, maybe. Okay, not really. But it does present a kind of mirage that has seduced many a historian and artist. It's entirely true that Berlin became a cultural mecca and a magnet for the intelligentsia and bohemian cliques of the nation during this time, as well as any wealthy socialites who wanted to rub shoulders with them. In Berlin clubs, you could have found new types of music, like the jazz that was emblematic of this period of time across the Western world. But the reason I call it a mirage is that it really was an ephemeral phenomenon. It was always fragile. Next week, we'll take a closer look at what made life different from what had come before and what would follow. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.